Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hi, I am Jeffrey Lipton. I'm a professor at the University of Washington in the Department of Mechanical Engineering with a courtesy appointment in computer science. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Jeffrey. I would like to go back when you were a child. Do you have any memories you were in science or technology as a kid? I mean, I feel like for every engineer, it's got to start at Legos at some point, mm-hmm. right? So Legos were, were an obsession of mine. Uh, I would just spend countless hours playing with them, building things with them. Uh, but actually, yeah. the piece that was really special to me is the Eli Whitney Museum in Hamden, Connecticut. Um, so they converted Eli Whitney's old gun factory into a children's carpentry workshop. Yeah. And so uh, every summer, I got to build robots out of uh, wow. discarded motors and old Nintendo buttons and wires mm-hmm. and play with... Um, very basics of programming and it was really a magical place uh it was they gave us you know unbelievable amounts of freedom to go explore with technology and resources and gave us just enough supervision that we didn't hurt ourselves but not so much that we couldn't do something interesting mm, that's very interesting so if i ask you what is the first robot you build it and maybe it's like childhood that's the first robot you build yeah the first robot would definitely be a uh a robot called Brachiosaurus. Mm-hmm. Uh, I built a robot Godzilla with braces because I had braces at the time. And Brachiosaurus was the, the mascot of my orthodontist. Yeah. And um, it had no intelligence on board. It was just two motors cabled back to a wooden control panel yeah. uh, where you could power on each motor independently um, by pressing the Nintendo start or reset buttons. And uh, it, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, I think my mom still has it in my my oh, wow. the museum of me that is her house. Great, yeah. So if I ask you, maybe what is maybe the most simple, uh, before beautiful, profound equation that inspired you? I don't know that there's any equation that really stands out to me as mm-hmm. like the one. Like there are the cliches, right? You know, the the Euler equation where it's like you know e to the i pi equals negative yeah. one. What is that? Um, I, I think more than any equation, it was the idea of the function, mm-hmm. right? It's like this idea of like, well, it's it's this thing that you put something in and it transforms it, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. that that is the the fundamental basis of so much of what we do. That yeah. really kind of blew me away. Um, yeah. And then more recently, you know, when I was introduced, kind of actually my postgraduate work to the ideas of group theory mm-hmm. that also really kind of took my breath away in terms of its the, the simplicity of the idea leading to a great deal of power and structure great so if i ask you how you came across soft robotics field how this when this started actually introduced it to the field of robotics uh i, I like to say i was kind of sitting next to it when it started um mm-hmm. so i did my phd with hod lipson um yep. And around the corner from me was Jonathan Hiller, and he was working on these 
robots that were evolved that had uh, open and closed cell elements that you could pressure cycle in a chamber and it would inflate and contract and move. Um, and then I was introduced to the work by Rob Shepard um, yeah. when he came to give his job talk at Cornell when I was a graduate student. And uh, I found it in very intriguing that there was this whole creative design space that was opening up. Let me ask you how you define soft robotics from your now research line. What do you think may be the accurate definition for soft robotics? Well, the bigger problem is we don't have a definition of robotics, mm -hmm. right? So there, there is no accurate, there is only useful. Um, so I think the useful term is, you know, soft robotics is anytime you're building something not out of um, pre-structured plastic or steel. Um, mm -hmm. But I actually really prefer the concept of materials robotics, that I think that's really kind of the fundamental transformation that's going on. And we're just kind of shoehorning it in under this term soft robotics as a legacy term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I really like what you said about material robotics because I think, I don't know if you agree about that, there is maybe um, a gap between the robotist and material science. For example, if you have to design um, a certain material, you, you, how you, the way you communicate with material science, what's like you have to have a model developed. So how do you see the communication between material science and robotist? And maybe what are the missing pieces between both of them? Yeah, so I think kind of, some of the communication problem is that there, there's a lack of necessarily deep exposure between what the mm -hmm. fields are talking about in background, right? So, you know, I, I often work with chemists these days mm -hmm. um, and they're talking about what, you know, polymers, monomers, okay, that I understand. And then they get into kind of one step more complicated and I haven't done chemistry since high school. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, I'm kind of trying to piece together what they're describing and, and why I should care. Right? Those are kind of the two big gaps. It's like, well, we've got this material, it's, it's, you know, it's mechanochromic and it does this. I'm like, well, okay, what does that give me? What does that do? How do we map this down into a performance space where I can start making design decisions? Mm -hmm. um, and then there's also kind of, and I think actually Rob Shepard alluded to this in our debate, um, yeah. what do we even mean by materials? Isn't everything materials? And so sometimes I think we have to dis distinguish much more around scales of discussion in the scales of what we're trying to build. And we don't like to think in terms of what is the scale of the structure. And what I really think is interesting about materials robotics that's being shoehorned in under soft robotics is that we're designing structures across the scales from molecular up to macro. And we've, we're trying to simultaneously access that entire design space. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so talking about those, like what is the scale of what we're talking about and where that effect will be seen, I think is a really important component mm -hmm. that's missing from a lot of discussions. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. I would like to stop here again about the scale because when you mentioned about maybe scale from either micro or meso macro, it depends which scale you have to go for. And if we want to be able to um, have a operation here about whether about modeling, which is scale of modeling you want to go for, if you can tell us example that could be challenging, for example, of course, if we go to the molecular scale, it will be challenging for maybe robots to grasp the idea. But from your expertise, do you think uh, which level we have to go for in discussion? If we want to have 
uh, a reproducible soft robot and a design recipe, which is scale of scale of modeling, scale of understanding. We have to go. Well, I, I can't say which I think is the the correct one. I can only say which is the one I find the most interesting and where I'm playing. Um, I really like looking at the design space at the meso scale. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at least for me, I like it when I can be handed off from the chemists and material scientists, say a new resin for my 3D printer. And yeah. then I've got some resolution that that printer gives me and I can start patterning at that scale up to the macro scale. And so that gives me some bounds, which I think are really important for an engineer, right? To know like you, you the most difficult problem in all of engineering is the blank whiteboard. You're like, there's, it's completely unconstrained. Yeah. Um, and then it also, I think it's a very rich design space from a mechanical perspective. There's so much that can be done at patterning mesoscale structures to transform mechanical behaviors from base components that is unexplored and is, it also falls into the category of why now, which is that now 3D printing and digital manufacturing is catching up and computing is catching up. And so now we can bring all those together and do interesting things. Mm -hmm. um, in a way that couldn't be done before. And it's, it's a nice interface boundary with the chemist where I can say, I need something that will be printable and I can define printable for a specific process and say, and it needs to give me these life cycle fatigue properties or these other active mechanical properties. And I could start integrating multifunctional materials at the meso scale. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's kind of where I see the, the handoff coming from the material scientists to the mechanical engineers is at that meso scale interface. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. And maybe the question here again about, uh, do you think we understand the physics behind the material we use? And what could be in that case, the most important question we have to consider so that we can close this gap and make it clear that what are the important questions? Or I mean, the, the most important question is always who cares? Mm -hmm. um, the, the main thing we need is to is to look at what are applications we need to solve and then find out what's the level of innovation that has to occur in order to solve those problems. Um, I think there are some themes that go across scale. There are some themes that work across domains that you could say like, well, if I solve this technical problem, it'll solve five others. Um, mm -hmm. I think the material set of what is 3D printable is interesting. I think the material set of what is activatable is interesting from the material science side. Um, but then I think we need to start looking at the patterning of how do we leverage and define gradients? How do we leverage and define microstructures? Um, and how do we computationally explore these spaces are kind of a generalized problem set that we can find applications to drive where we need to do the innovations in those subfields. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that's also interesting, but about whether a, maybe you have a project you have to be technology driven or product driven. Because I think that's also a question we have in the podcast, which focus we have to go for. And you think that we have to be like a product driven, what, what we develop and, and based that we can shift what our thinking about um, how to design soft robot, right? Well, so I think there's an infinite number of problems, mm -hmm. right? And the, the main question is how do you prioritize them? And sometimes you get lucky and you are often pure play land. And I, I don't want to discount play. I think play is, critical, right? You know, but it, it needs to be bounded to like 20% time, right? 20% of your, of your research time should be spent playing and exploring and just doing things for its own sake. 
Um, but then I think looking towards use cases outside of robotics that robotics can solve yeah. is going to drive innovations that'll have impact and help us ask better questions. Because fundamentally you can ask an infinite number of questions and we have to turn it into the top 10 million that we choose this year. And the only way you can do that is through external prioritization. Yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right. So may I ask you about the challenges of the material? Which, which material do you think um, could be optimum from your perspective? Because we have different properties like viscoelastic, sometimes it depends on how you design the energy density and that's what Tropic Shiver is doing. I think the focusing and the designing material with high energy density. So what could be the optimum material for you from your perspective? Um, I mean, there's the obvious ones, right? Like if we can invent a material that can store infinite amounts of energy, it will radically transform all of society and robotics along with it, yeah. right? So energy storage density and accessing it is critically important and efficiently transferring that energy out into some movement is important. Um, I'm a firm advocate of motors. I think motors are great at anything at the, you know, macro scale. Having a accessible micro scale equivalent of a motor, I think would be phenomenal. Um, everything else has been kind of unimpressive. Um, just either, you know, too, many, too much voltage, too much current, or way too inefficient, or way too little force. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the, the main problem is not that we lack materials, it's we lack the driving force to integrate all the materials we have together to do something, right? Like, I, I, I don't know what I would, like, I know there's cool things I could probably do with a bunch of, you know, a billion micromotors. Um, yeah. That would be nice, but... Uh, I don't know what what problem it would it would societally solve. I think it would just be fun to play with. Okay, if you cannot break more, why do you think this is a problem? Why we if we have multi materials and we have to combine them? What do you think may be uh, lacking here to make what we're looking for? What is the cause of a problem? I mean, part of it is our design tools, right? Mm -hmm. Like you know, I can't design complex multi material active structures in SolidWorks. I mean, that's, that's just a fundamental limitation of if I've got a structure and I need to articulate it to a computer in order to get it made, yeah. or, or even articulate to a computer so I could understand and wrap my own head around it. Right now, all of our design tools are really crude at trying to access that type of work. And so design tools that help us explore the complexity of that design space, I think are really important, as well as uh, changing the mentality of mechanical engineers in terms of how they think about doing design, right? Uh, I'm a firm advocate that we need to take CAD from a point and click philosophy into a coding philosophy, right? Like we need to we need to bring more coding into mechanical engineering in order to make this design space accessible and explorable so that we can do interesting things with this complexity we can produce. I really like this point so much. I think, um, I don't know if I can, if I can operate with that and you, if you agree about that, because I think First of all, I think if we look to the structure uh, optimization, I had an episode with Professor Nails from University of Denmark and, and he said that soft robotics community maybe underappreciate uh, the importance of structure optimization 
or topology optimization as well. It's super challenging. And I don't know if you agree about that, that we neglect how the morphology optimization or topology optimization as a design tool. And the second thing is um, you can see um, in the community sometimes such tool like that is still used. Um, and no one really I, I speak out loud about these problems. Why do you think this kind of thoughts come from? I mean, part of it is when we started off with soft robotics, there was so much low hanging academic fruit to pick that was mm -hmm. simple work that we didn't need to bring in all these other tools. And I think we've quickly run the course of what we can do with novel forms of pneumatically actuating casted structures. Mm -hmm. And now we're searching around for like, what's the next great tool set we could import in um, that will give our work some novelty that we can drive it forward that's still accessible, but we're gonna be going up that, that S curve in terms of difficulty to get rewards, right? Cause now it's not, I need to train an undergrad on how to core uh, dragon skin from Ecoflex, you know, I need yeah. to go and teach them, you know, the entire concept of solid mechanics and yeah. how that works. It's like, well, maybe I can't bootstrap that into an undergrad. So instead of churning out undergraduate papers, I now need to start investing in graduate students and long-term investments. And, you know, it'll take five years to get a, an ICRA paper out potentially on that road. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, you hit the nail about the timing of the publication, but I think also we discussed that in the podcast about uh, that the pressure to publish sometimes it leads to that you neglecting maybe the core of the problem because there's a pressure to publish. I don't know if you think that also contributes in, in what you mentioned, or I don't know if you agree about that as well. So the pressure to publish definitely contributed to the gold rush because we, everyone looked around and said, oh my God, there's this wide open field filled with low hanging fruit that I can pick and publish and, and generate mm -hmm. 30 publications a year on, right? Mm -hmm. And now we're getting to the things where you have to start thinking hard to do the work. I mean, we've been there for a little while, but it's, it's grown in terms of the difficulty of thinking you need to do to get more meaningful work. Mm -hmm. um, so you're kind of at the tail end of the gold rush um, and now we're, we're kind of branching out into what can we do that's harder and a deeper investment. But I think that's an important phase of maturation of the community, right? We're, we're going to, to have to be forced into a more rigorous thought process and that will produce things that are more durable in terms of results. Yeah, yeah, indeed. So reflecting that, uh, I'm curious to ask you, what, what is an area or direction of research you think it, it's very promising, but the community seems to disagree or doesn't get much attention beyond what you mentioned? Something also important, do you think about it? I mean, at some level, I, I feel like I'm not the only person talking about metamaterials, uh, mm -hmm. but I think metamaterials and the design of, you know, structures that transform the material properties from the base materials to give you the results that you need um, are really underdeveloped in terms of their application in soft robotics. We've seen a couple out recently in terms of people applying oxetics as constraints on soft robotic arms, control inflation or bending. But I think there's it's an absolutely deep and rich vein that I'm, I'm basically devoting at least half my lab to. Um, and so I think that there's a lot more work to be done in that area mm -hmm. in terms of soft robotics research. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, you are right about the myth material. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you as well. And if I ask you about um, 
the non-linearities in the material, because I think that's also important uh, question. We ask how we can access the beneficial uh, non-linearities in the material and the structure geometry so that we can get interesting information. And if we, if that happened, do you think that what you're thought about the traditional control techniques, because, because we had this question, how the controller can get the task done without destroying the natural dynamics of the smart material, for example. So if we manage to understand this nonlinearities or use this beneficial nonlinearities, can be used as a, control, as a controller for the body without using uh, traditional control techniques or external control, so that we have a body that can uh, compute and uh, actuate uh, itself without external um, control. I mean, I'm sure there are very interesting things we can do to build material, to use material intelligence to build the control loop in. Mm -hmm. um, the one I'm presuming is a lot more about encoding the transformations into the metamaterial structure. There's been a couple bits of work on how you can pursue that, how you can say, take three bits of loading into mechanical logic. There's a lot of growing efforts there in terms of mechanical logic that can all be viewed from the metamaterial lens. So I think there are interesting things to do there. I'm not as convinced that it's that important. I think that outside of radiation dense environments, electrical control and processing is interesting. And even in material science, there's this growing you know, push to leverage all of the power coming out of computing to dynamically inform material properties, right? So I think much more than trying to use the materials to encode intelligence outside of a couple edge cases of of high radiation environments, um, it would be much more interesting to actually go the other way and then take all of that electronic control work and use it to dynamically affect the structures and change the mechanical properties as we need them. Mm -hmm. So that's all right, but how we can access this nonlinearities, the beneficial one in the material and the structure as well. And if we see that in soft robotics, how we can really exploit this nonlinearities or how we can access them the material and the structure as well. Do you, you have an answer with that? I don't have any particularly great insight on that. Um, I think the more interesting thing is how can we use the nonlinearities to, or the inherent properties of what material can do to limit the controller's ability to blow up the robot, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. there's tons of things you can do right now with a, a hard arm robot where it'll tear itself apart and everyone around it. Um, and I think there's still a lot to be done with just building in material constraints on the controller so that the controller can be a little bit more carefree. Um, in terms of exploiting nonlinearities, like, you know, getting a dead fish to swim, I'm sure people will come up with interesting things. It's just not my focus at this time. I'm much more focused on how I can use control loops in the materials to dynamically make mm -hmm. material state part of what we're controlling in the robot state. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. So yes, it's still a challenging question. I agree with you. So maybe we have to investigate that in the, in the future, yeah. But um, if I ask you what maybe misconceptions about soft robotics, something in the fields will maybe outside as well. So if you can answer what maybe most misconceptions you have witnessed. Biggest misconception I've witnessed. Yeah, I think there is a general disconnect between how much work we generate and the media it generates and how much impact it's actually having in industry. Mm -hmm. I think that is probably the biggest misconception that is so far working in our advantage, which is that we haven't really changed much about how robots are used and deployed. 
but we generated a lot of academic work that's really cool and of interest and it's keeping people excited right so we're, we're kind of writing the 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 first wave up on the hype cycle of soft robotics um, and i saw this with with 3d printing right so my early work was on 3d printing rode up that hype cycle came down through the trough and now we're starting to actually have impact in industry and it, it took a while um, but there's always that disconnect between what people think you're accomplishing and what what's actually translated out the door mm -hmm. um, the other one is i think everyone thinks that we're all working on uh, making the robots from Westworld and uh, we're going to do crazy things like that when we're, we're doing things that are much more basic in terms of, you know, grippers and fish and, and hopefully something that will have some, some applications downstream. Yeah. 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 I think, I think uh, this point's a really good point. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about what could be the biggest technological roadblocks that could face soft robotics in short term and long term? Biggest technological roadblocks. Yeah. In my mind, it's not a technological roadblock. It's a roadblock imposed on our technology, which is that too many of our tools are locked down uh, and we're not sharing enough. That, like, yeah, we've, we've got software robotics toolkits, we share things like that, but uh, and we've, we've, we've built on this great base of Ecoflex, but a lot of people are building custom 3D printers to do a lot of their work. It's not available. They become kind of the trade secret of their lab uh, mm -hmm. to give them a competitive advantage. And then also with industry, a lot of the 3D printers are overly locked down in terms of accessibility. And that's definitely either that trade secret level or that um, you know patent or technological roadblock level is definitely slowing down the rate of innovation in soft robotics. Mm -hmm. I think that's really a very serious point, and I'd like to stop here again. How do you see this practice of being secret and not sharing information? Because we have to be honest in that case, we know even in publication, and there's a severe competition, and you are not allowed to share information or the data set or the experiment result. And it, it, it causes problem, of course. How do you see this would lead to who is responsible for that? Why we why we have these practices in the field, or maybe in an academia in general? It's a it's a natural byproduct of everyone wants to maintain their competitive advantage. Yeah. Right. Like that. You know, any any complex game like science is both cooperative and competitive simultaneously. Mm -hmm. It has to be both. Um, it just so happens that part of the the competitive level is about getting there first. And the cooperative level is about, you know, understanding and building this body of knowledge. And so at some level, it's a trade off between those two. Um, part of it is also the reward structure of you don't really get rewarded much for building a novel piece of technical equipment that you hand out to everyone. Yeah. Right. Like if I so so I worked on the, the Fab at Home project. We developed open source 3D printers, we developed them gave the designs away for free, sent them all over the world. They were using tons of bio papers. And, you know, the general currency of science is citations. We wrote a paper on it. And I can tell you that maybe 10% of the papers that were built on our machine ever cited our original paper. Mm -hmm. And so because you don't view like the contribution of your Instron machine 
as a scientific contribution or something worthy of citing that your particular printer that you used is not necessarily seen as worthy of citing. Um, there isn't an incentive to go out and build these tools like that. They're in the currency of citations. There is currency often in like software packages. There's a level of prestige if something just becomes the default standard, um, but it's harder to quantify in the early tenure citation game. Um, it's much more of a reputational management system mm -hmm. inside the community. And it's very much feast or famine because you'll build something and you don't know if it'll take off. Um, so you, you're not really incentivized to go out looking to build the open thing. Because if you go out and build the open thing, the odds that someone is going to, it's going to pick up and become the community standard is quite low. Um, Who contributes in that? And well, and you mentioned to be competitive and cooperative at the same time. And and I get, I don't know how this could be realistically deployed. I mean, I don't know if there is a solution, right? Like you've got plenty of open source projects that work, but they work because they're not the core value, right? Like where, where does open source sharing work the best, right? when it's for the users, by the users, but it's not the user's competitive advantage, yeah. right? Like plenty of people contribute to Linux, but very few people's core product is just Linux kernel. In fact, no one's is, but they build something else on top of it that gives them their advantage. So these things just kind of emerge spontaneously. Um, generally in my mind, they're, they're solved when someone sees a way to make money off of servicing a large group of people. Right, so imagine if we all had our own instrons, our own mechanical testing machine, and then instron came into existence, and everyone just said, "Oh yeah, that's better," and just bought it. Right, like at some level, a market will emerge if it's of sufficient size, and someone will service everyone, and you'll get standardized. Now, instron mm -hmm. testing is standardized. Um, it could definitely happen in three D printing. I just don't think the market for research three D printers is big enough. And the culture in the 3D printing market is such that it's so IP focused. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's razor razor blade model of the business, um, that it's unlikely to to break out of this mold anytime soon. So I would like to go back for a second social robotics debate about, uh, and you were one of the panelists and advocates for architected compliance, and I really appreciate your enthusiasm. You were very enthusiastic in this debate, so. If you can first all, uh, the second of robotics debate was about whether we have to go for new materials for sake of new functionality, or we have to understand how we can design architecture material. If you can tell us firstly, what is actually architecture compliance for the student listening first time? What's architecture compliance? Yeah, so my, my general view on that was about patterning structures in where you intentionally have regions of deformation and regions of low deformation. And that, involve patterns that would exist at the meso scale up through the macro scale. Um, so this could be just a motor plus a spring. It could be the handed shear and offsetics that I use where they're structures that are entirely floppy but can be integrated with a motor system. It could be mechanical metamaterials at the micro scale uh, that are produced and used to give you interesting structures. And I was saying that really needed to be much more of a focus of what we're doing. Um, and one of the points I didn't get to in the debate was that is actually where industry ends up, right? Like it turns out that most of these things we've been making soft. Um, industry has looked at very similar things and gone with this architected compliance approach at the macro scale 
And I think what would be interesting for us is to explore what we could do with that at the meso scale um, and see if we could, you know, find an application domain where, you know, because we designed it at the meso scale, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Part of my motivation for going against just saying we need more materials is we've got tons of, you know, different active materials, um, yeah. not a huge, a lot to show for it. That's of great use. Um, a lot of the times you'll see a cool soft robot, but it can't leave its fish tank. And you're like, okay, we've got a hydrogel robot that can dance around and do these interesting things, but it's 2% efficient. And if we pull it out of the fish tank, it'll dry up in an hour. All right, it's something useful that way. And the question I will ask you here, because I think that's maybe related to what you do, why there's always a trade-off, for example, between the mechanical performance and response time and approach bandwidth. Why in the community this this trade-off of happening? If we look to nature, we have insects that can have high forces, they can jump and at a very high bandwidth. So why we have this limit this trade-off? Do you think it comes down because we don't have um rigorous modeling and when you say that skillful modeling which is skillful modeling we have to go for as well and why modeling is too challenging and maybe sometimes also we can see that there is no design recipe for designing or how maybe the morphology contribute in that so how you can answer this question so i'm not sure of a particularly great answer i the, the only thing i would say is I'm very much more of a fan of an Edisonian approach than I think a lot of uh, academic scientists are. Um, I think a lot can be done by just throwing large amounts of grad students suffering at a problem and finding 10,000 ways how not to do something to explore parameter space. Mm -hmm. um, I think that in terms of why active materials aren't giving us the response time, I mean, we have ones that give us the response time, right? Dielectric actuators respond very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, the main problem we deal with is that we don't, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of the Hazel, right? I think Hazel is a really amazing yeah. concept on a, the next generation of dielectric actuators. Yeah. Um, the main problem comes down to is packaging, interfacing, and power density out of these things. So while there's going to be niche applications for them, you know, it's kind of like, and I think I said this in the debate, it's kind of like saying, well, we're going to throw out silicon as the basis of computing and move to something else. It's like, well, let's start at the edge cases where it's really useful. This is what we're doing with gallium nitride, right? Turns out it's really great for power. So now that's why our overall chargers are tiny. So I think if we find the right edge case where like you have to use this thing, it's got this competitive advantage, find that kernel and then grow from there as we develop it. Um, it'll be much more successful than trying to take on, you know, King Motor directly. And right now, motors are king for movement. They're way better than anything else. They're getting better all the time. They're produced at scale. Um, and so I think the more we can try to leverage motors and soft robotics, the better off we'll be. And that we should start with a niche application where we're going to end up pouring in the trillions of dollars of development in over time um for actuating other materials and, and try to find those niches and i haven't seen them in robotics with the possible exception of things that are done at the micro scale like robo b uh, or the work of you know sawyer fuller with his you know micro flies um mm -hmm. those are are an niche case where like yeah you can't stick a motor on that thing we have to go with some some other active material system uh, but we need to find those places where like you can't do a motor start there 
and then build outwards. Yeah, but I, I don't know if I agree with you, Jeff, to be honest, because I, you are right, it depends on application. I think that's what's one, one of the points you mentioned that whether we have to go completely soft or rigid or hybrid of design. But do you think that's, that we are, we are not answering maybe the challenge? Why we have that? Yes, you are right. Maybe if we have the motors, it could be have a really robust application. It depends. But do you think that we, we're not really answering uh, the question? Do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I mean, we don't have a great insight as to why we can't make better actuating materials. Mm -hmm. um, I guess my point was to say, I don't know that we need to solve that problem right away. Um, and that if we do want to solve it, it's probably going to come down to, you know, what's the key in nature? It's parallelization, mm -hmm. right? Like it's, it's a billion tiny things that are all pushing in unison that, that combine together in this way and this, this type of work. And we haven't seen that a lot in a lot of our uh, designs that tend to be much more bulk. And so there might be a need for a complexity of structure to get us there, or it might just be a need yeah. for, you know, thinking about the problem from a different perspective. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, all right. So we have the audience question. The first one from Jetin Mekar, I hope I said right. And he asks is, what makes a soft material viable to be used as a manufacturing material for soft robot? Is it better a functionality or it is easy uh, manufacturing? I mean, what, so let's look at the, the most successful use case right now for, for soft robotics, right? It's uh, the soft robotics company, I think George Whitesides helped start it. Um, and they've got these inflatable silicone grabbers mm -hmm. that um, they're used for, for pick and place operations. What makes that so great? Why do you need that material there? It's large number of cycles, high deformability, very easy to produce, uh, very mm -hmm. cheap. Yeah. Right. That's a great reason to do those types of, of new net structures and those particular applications. Um, but we've also seen soft robotics companies completely go belly up. Right. So my friend John Eamon ran Empire Robotics. You know, they had one of my favorite little demos, which was the, the beanbag gripper. Um, softness was critical to it. You needed a soft, deformable membrane that could hold in all this stuff to undergo this interesting property of material phase transition. Yeah. Um, and you couldn't do that with a rigid structure, right? You just can't undergo this volume change that way. And I think at the core of all of these is generally a looking at how volume changes and how you can induce volume change to give you different actuation. And that tends to lend itself to being soft because if you've got a soft volume that's changing, you need some instruction to do the skin over it. I, I, think, I think this question is an excellent question, like I say, because there is like a trade-off between what function you're looking for and how you fabricate them. And I think that's again about how, how you have like, if you have a very good idea, but it is risky in terms of funding. If you have a good, if you get funding, it's risky for you to have uh, a very complex uh, uh, manufacturing technique. You don't have access for that. Do you think that's also contribute about uh, to select risk, less risky idea so that you can secure the funding and also having access for, uh, uh, like, uh, as you said earlier, that most techniques are still secret. You, you don't know how you can reproduce or you don't have access for that. Right. So risk, risk doesn't always correlate with cost, right? So, you know, it's, less, it's much less risky to take apart and CNC machine it to make it and fly it on an airplane than it is to 3D print it 
but for a very complex part, it might be cheaper to 3D print. Um, and then, so the, the cost isn't necessarily in the fabrication itself. The cost that you're looking over for is the cost to get confidence in that part, mm -hmm. right? That total life cycle cost is something we don't really necessarily think about and just, and it's way, way more than the cost of the individual fabrication. So it may be for a lot of soft robotics that when we get to scale production, it's way cheaper because we could use things like blown molding and rotocasting and all these other very mature high throughput techniques. Um, but the getting to the point where we can use them to produce soft robots that your company will trust and deploy in the field, that lift cost is right now too high uh, to justify the, the promise of the very cheap component. Um, and in terms of 3D printing, you know, the joke is always that 3D printing is the second best way to make any item. It just may be that it's too expensive to do the other. Um, and in 3D printing, what it comes down to is when we're doing this here is you need to justify your parts cost and trade-off with the complexity of the part and the value that you'll generate due to that complexity. And so I think what we need to find in these cases is when is the complexity that we're building justified or when is the risk that you're taking um, yeah. to, to reduce so you can just, so you can have a smaller lift cost over your building confidence in your part. Yeah, that's a simple one, yeah. And the second part of the question, are the functionality of the currently available soft robots enough? Is soft robotics explored and investigated enough to focus on ribbon manufacturing techniques? rather than scouting new prospective application? Yeah, I think definitely the functionality that's in soft robotics is not enough, mm -hmm. but I think it's mostly because it's not matched problems well, right? We haven't been chasing, we, we've been kind of exploring this idea set, and now we need to start exploring applications. Um, my favorite one in this vein, that's not my work, I should say, is uh, the gel site sensor by Ted Eagleson, right? So it was a very simple innovation of you take a gel, you put a, a reflective coating on it, you press it onto a surface, and now we can high resolution image that surface and reconstruct. You get this crazy amount of sensor capability out of it because you built this soft compliant structure in it. And it's got tons of applications downstream. Um, yeah. So I think that there's a lot that can be done, but you know, it's going to come from, you know, instead of trying to build another fish that can swim, it's gonna come from, can we look at where the gap is between what the problem soft robotics is solving and the problems industry needs solved? Yeah, yeah, great. So we have also a question from Edita Melgantkar. I hope I said it right as well. And I have a mini question, but maybe we can uh, pick the most relevant one here. The ask is, can you define an ideal set of skill experiences? Since it would be different for those working on material functionalities, more like uh, with material or mechanical engineering versus for those who are working on architected compliance. Gotcha, so what's the skill set? So the common skill set between both that's most important is uh, to be an autodidact, to be able to teach yourself. Um, because fundamentally, there is too much you need to know for us to teach you to be perfect for these skills, right? So the ability to just go down to, I need to know what I don't know and go out and learn it so I can then go apply it is the most important skill. And that's true across every domain of research. 
So it's definitely true between architectural compliance and uh, designing materials. I think the main trade-off between the two is how much chemistry you need to know. Yeah. Um, where you need, if you're designing material systems and stuff like that, you need to be much better at chemistry. Um, but that's more of a gradation because you know if you're building patterned materials, you need to know how these materials are going to act. You just don't have to be an expert at the polymer chemistry. Mm -hmm. right? You just have to know enough to kind of get by and know what the, the, the material scientists are telling you. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I kind of see as the mean breakdown. The other big skill that I think you really need going forward is to be able to be a good coder, right? Being good at coding is, being the, is the new being good at math. Yeah. And so no matter what, you need to be able to have at least one programming language, preferably uh, in my mind, the only ones you need right now are Python, C, and JavaScript. Mm -hmm. uh, JavaScript just for GUIs. Uh, but if you know Python and C, you'll be a powerhouse. And then if later on you learn Julia, you'll be even more unstoppable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but knowing how to code because you're dealing with complex structures, controllers, is also, and how to generate them is also really important. Great. Yeah. They also ask you for early stage researcher with minimal uh, to interdisciplinary background. Is the focus on soft robotics research more concentrated in a state of interdisciplinary? For example, you said that do a computer science grad student have an inclination towards simulation instead of material? And how much does this affect your work and how open are researchers to work with a student with little new experience in soft robotics, but some good experiences in their own field? So let, let me give you an example. I have a student right now who's working for me, who's a computer scientist. He yeah. is doing simulation work. He is also doing 3D printing work on a soft robot. He's also working with a chemist simultaneously. So one CS student is simultaneously doing CS work, mechanical engineering work, and interfacing with chemists. Um, so the willingness to engage with a student is going to be highly depending on the culture of the institution you're embedded in um, more than, you know, anything else, right? You know, UW is a highly collaborative place. Everyone wants to hang out and do cool stuff. Uh, if you go to other schools, I won't name names. It's very much you sit in your corner and do your thing by yourself. Um, and in that, in the cases where it's you sit in a corner and do things by yourself and you're, you're not necessarily given the opportunities to be an autodidact and be mentored, um, it's hard to, to convince someone to interface with you unless you've got your pre-built skills back. Mm -hmm. So the more you're in a collaborative environment, the less important you're coming in with a preset skill is. The more you're in a structured environment, the more you have to be kind of structured in your knowledge base to execute your task. Yeah, great. And he also asked, uh, he has a lot of, but that's last question from Edita that he asked what, what traditional controller be able to achieve behavior that's close to it's morphological computation based alternative. If so, would it be more performant? So, okay. So is it better to have a computer-based controller or a material-based controller? And would it be better to encode it in a computer or in a material? Is that the question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think the idea, this isn't my idea. This is Neil Gershenfeld's to his credit. Um, the idea that we've separated computer science from the physical world is a big mistake. Yeah. Right? You're always doing computing in structures. The only question is what's the right encoding methodology 
Um, so it, it's going to be an engineering sign trade-off is the way I view it. Like sometimes it'll be better to do it computationally because the electrical system will be faster than the mechanical waves propping through the system. Other times it'll be better to, import it in, to uh, embed it mechanically because your electrical system is gonna get tried out by radiation or heat or something else. Yeah. So choosing between where you encode your computing um, should be a design question for your specific problem more than a general, you always do this or you always do that, or this one has this general advantage over the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great. And I have also a question from Nicholas Herdick uh, from University of Sheffield. Uh, he said that, how can the morphological computation help simplify controller for infinite degree of freedom robots such as software continuum robots? So how can, how can materials make things simpler to control? Yeah, yeah. Here's a simple one, reducing the time constant, right? If I'm emulating a spring mass damper in a motor, I need to operate at kilohertz and have kilohertz uh, operations in my system. Human body is not doing control loops in kilohertz range because we have a much slower time constant because our materials are much squishier. So adding some compliance into your system can help you with the control response that you need. Building it into your material system that way will, will do it. The other one is you can just ignore it, right? If your material is automatically going to deform and absorb your contact error with an object, then you don't have to control it at all. And that's the best, right? The, the best computation is the one you don't have to do. Mm -hmm. And so building in these deformations to, to be absorbed and hit your end goal anyways is important. And we, we intuitively know this as mechanical engineers, right? So if you look at a pen cap, you know, it's built so that I can have a great deal of affordance and misalignment and it'll still snap together because yeah. the structure solves a wide range and funnels it down to a solution. Um, I could have a perfectly aligned pen cap where I have to have a high precision control loop, very accurately placing something so it just goes on, but that would be annoying to use. Um, so you can use the affordances of your structure to change how much noise your controller has to control. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the second part is ask about, does the controller need to be aware of the computation done by morphology or can morphology computation be treated as black and gray box? Uh, it depends on the problem, mm -hmm. Yeah. right? I, so yeah. If, if here's an example, right? We did this, this auto saw controller uh, where we had two robots pick up a piece of lumber and cut it. And the controller had no idea that there was a built-in compliance into the, the robotic system to absorb it. But the planner had a sense of, well, I don't, I need to worry about this degree of freedom along the board because that's um, something that's sensitive to my control. And I don't have to care so much about the others because that's insensitive to my control. So you can, you can weakly couple it as well. So it, it's very dependent on what is it that you're trying to achieve. So there'll be yeah. some cases where it's like, yeah, you should know that your material is deforming so you can plan. Um, this might be a case with, let's say you're, you're running and you need to know what you're stepping on and where you can push off of. Uh, or you can have one where it's, uh, I'm just kind of slamming two things together to get an alignment and I don't, I don't need to worry that there's compliance in my system. I, yeah. I can just ignore that degree of freedom. Yeah. That's uh, that's all right, yeah. And last question from the audience, Sarah 
Abeb, I think he, he, he's from University College of London, he asked us why the translation of soft robotics to industry is so challenging. Is it because of the manufacturing process or modeling of soft robots? And where do you think that the breakthrough is missing? Uh, I, I think the big breakthrough is missing from the direction. What we need is more right? We need industry to come and say, like, we've got these problems and we need to listen to them and then go solve those problems. Um, and what we've been doing has been play. And now we're, we're kind of transitioning beyond that, um, where we're saying, say, like, okay, what is it that you can only solve because it's a software bot? That's the next question we need to be answering. And that will make the transition happen because if if the value we will generate to industry is high enough relative to our cost, they will adopt it or you will start a startup and make money. Mm -hmm. um, but the key is to find like, what are the things that you can't do now with a hard robot that we need the soft robot to do that industry is caring about? Uh, and that's kind of a, a narrowing funneling effect on your research. Yeah, yeah. So we are closing to the end and I have a few questions. First one about what are the main challenges you face in your work? Something really challenging. I mean, the biggest challenge right now is uh, the obvious one, which is coronavirus. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's a cheat, right? Like the biggest challenge is like, I need to get bodies in the lab to do things. Yeah. Uh, and doing that safely. Um, the, big, the other big challenge is there are challenges in the structure of of the job of being a professor that you just have to figure out your system in your first few years. Um, yeah. So every kind of like, you know, you go from a grad student or a postdoc where your life is fairly well-structured and you're, you're focused on, I need to do research to, I need to teach a class, write grants, review papers, review other people's grants, mentor somebody else, come yeah. up with ideas. Like you're, you're fragmented into a million little pieces um, and so building a, a rigorous self-disciplining system on top of that amount yeah. of freedom is quite challenging that people don't necessarily appreciate uh, before going through it. So yeah. you, you, you as a grad student live in someone else's order. And then when you become a professor, you have to build your own. And it's much more difficult to build your own order and handle the diversity of things you have to do yeah. uh, and do them all well. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's so challenging. I can't, I can't say that. So uh, I would like to ask you, how, how can we enable more inclusive culture around combined IA? And I think we highlighted that before about if you have a competition between different ideas, and so we, we want to make sure that we have intellectually inclusive uh, culture in the field. Uh, if you tell us what could be just one, two, three solutions. Um, well, there's big things, right? The biggest problem I think in, there's two big problems in robotics. One is it takes too long to get trained well. And the other one is it's too expensive. Yeah. Um, the pricing structure of an education is all broken. You know, we, we ask people to come in when they're 18 years old and pay up front for something that they don't know how to value that we yeah. promise them will be great and that they end up having to pay for for the rest of their life no matter what, at least in the United States. I know in other countries it's different, but in other countries, even if you pay for it through taxation, um, it basically just becomes a filtration process through attrition. And now you're stealing people's time uh, in order to say, well, you know, come through this filter. Maybe you'll make it. Maybe you won't. We'll see you on the other side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I, I think both of them have their benefits. And I think that 
Obviously, some have more benefits than others, but both of them have their flaws. I think that switching to a literal equity-based model of education would be uh, much better, where you trade essentially shares of future earnings for attending different structures of education. That'll align the incentives of the universities much more closely with students and build us a much more durable pipeline to search for the most talented people and ply them with the most opportunities we can, everyone with opportunities, because you reap the net reward of future benefits rather than uh, present access to capital. And I think that uh, on top of it, we need to restructure how we look at education in terms of how slow it is. Right, so you know, I, I did my undergraduate in physics, um, and in when I graduated, I was educated up to the year nineteen thirty. Mm -hmm. Right, I I could get all of human knowledge in physics up to the year nineteen thirty when I graduated my degree. That wasn't true, you know, in nineteen thirty. In nineteen thirty, you also got educated up to the year nineteen thirty, or in nineteen ten, you got educated oh. up to nineteen ten. Um, and the gap between where the field is and where we leave you at undergrad is growing and too large. Um, and we need to find ways of addressing it so that your bachelor's actually leaves you in a position to do work where we don't say, well, you wanna be a controls engineer uh, at a, a top company, you really need to go get your PhD, mm -hmm. right? Like that's mostly because we've hidden all of the complex cool things you can do in the graduate field because we didn't get to it by the end of undergrad. Um, and I think restructuring how we think about the prioritization of education for roboticists um, would be a great way to address some of the pipelining problems that we have where we don't make the pipeline too long because you know PhDs are what, what the second best known way to induce mental health problems right like they're they're socially isolating they're exploitative they're um they're one of the last feudal institutions we have left in society and you know saying to be at the cutting edge of robotics you need to have a a period of indentured servitude doesn't necessarily make sense. You know, Jeff, this is really a brilliant answer. And maybe you are maybe one of the, I don't know in the podcast, we have this answer like that for this question, but I think your, your answer is really brilliant and to the core. And I think you highlighted many interesting parts because I think if we go to mental health, I think we will have episode in the podcast about mental health in, in academia because you're right, most students are locked and isolated and when I speak to students, they're suffering mentally. The academy is, and I really do mean this, is one of like three or four feudal era institutions left on the planet, mm -hmm. right? Grad students are essentially treated like a serfdom class. Mm -hmm. um, you hope to get promoted up to the level of uh, knight when you're a postdoc. From there, you become a new professor and you're a lowly lord of your manor and you have to extract value from your serfs yeah. Uh, in order to, to feed yourself and keep your land going and growing, right? Like that structure is unchanged. Um, meanwhile, we, we have very few other feudal institutions left in society in the way that they're structured. And it's mostly because feudal institutions, while potentially very durable, aren't necessarily conducive to everyone's well-being. Yeah, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And I think, yeah, we need more work in that. And 
yeah, but it's a collective behavior. And yeah, it's, it's a complicated, to be honest. It's very complicated. This issue is very complicated. And I lost dimension how to change the culture and the structure of system and the hierarchy and, and all of that. This is really, yeah, this is hard. And I, I agree with you about how we can change education as well. We're like re-imaging the education because I, I share your point about the slow process and you have to go for PhD so that you can gain. If we ha have to imagine how undergrad will, you will gain the search skill that qualify you to the real world. That, that's something we also need. Yeah, there's a lot to be done here. Yeah. So yeah, well, I think, yeah. I think part of it is also that um, it turns out engineers are too expensive to educate. Yeah. Right. So uh, I have one of my good friends, you know, it costs $6 million of investment in his company to go from, I have an idea to how to get it manufactured and produced at scale, right? So teaching someone essentially how to get a product from idea to scale costs in that case, $6 million, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's too expensive. So in reality, if you look at what we do in a lot of undergraduate education is we get you ready to be invested in by a company for them to actually do the teaching on how to do your job. Yeah. And so we, we like to say we're in the education business in the academy, but we're, we're not. We, we're in the preparation for education business uh, yeah. because we're, we're gonna get you ready for someone else to say, yes, I will pay you and pay for you to learn because I think it'll be worth it and I'll get value out on the other side. And that's even true in PhDs because you know a PhD student costs a professor essentially half a million dollars um, in the United States. So, if I'm, I need to know that there's a strong enough signal coming out of undergrad that I can invest half a million dollars in you and I will get half a million dollars worth of value out. If I ask you what may be the most important quality you have gained while working in academia, something you have to maintain. Something you have to maintain to be an academic. Yeah, just one quality you have gained or, or you think you have to gain while being in academia. So what I had to gain was self-discipline to be in academia. Mm -hmm. um, what some people have to, one of the things I think is most important is a sense of play, right? So I, I had a pretty strong sense of play, too strong at times, and I needed to build an intellectually rigorous foundation to harness it because mm -hmm. I really like the inventing and the coming up and proving my idea, and I hate the sitting down and characterizing it and writing it and publishing it. Like pretty much everything after the play stage of my job, I hate. Um, but I, I do my job because it, it's the thing that lets me play the most intellectually. Um, so building that, that self-discipline was the thing I had to gain. Um, for other people, it might be the opposite where they've got tons of self-discipline and they need to learn how to just, you know, go out and explore and reconnect with their inner kid to, to generate new ideas. Yeah. 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 They're all right. And if I ask you what was the best advice was given to you with a person or professionally, and was the life changing? Best advice. I mean, there's the boring answer, which is know how to use a calendar. Um, that was, it's really useful, I'm not gonna lie, yeah. uh, but it's, it's really boring. Um, my yeah. other favorite piece of advice is your ability to be successful is directly proportional to your ability to say no. Yeah, I like, agree. That's wonderful. is a fundamentally important thing especially because there's so much you could be doing mm -hmm. that you need to figure out what you should be doing. 
That's brilliant. Yeah, I agree with you. So do you have any final words would like to say for self robotics community? I hope I wasn't too depressing. Um, I really like the community. I really like everyone in it. It's one of the most socially pleasant academic communities I've been involved with. Um, and I think that there's a lot that can be done and that we can build up all of this huge body of work we've been generating. Um, and so there's tons of potential, which I think everyone kind of senses, and we need to start focusing that potential into actual. Yeah. So thanks so much. If it's really insult insultful and enjoyable discussion, I really enjoyed this. Thanks all for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day.